Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We're broadcast on WKXL, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com and podcast wherever in the known universe you get your podcasts. I'm joined by my co-host, Matt Robeson. Three years ago, a little-known primary challenger pulled off a surprise win over a congressional veteran in New York, made national political news. That upstart eventually became pretty well-known for her outspoken embrace of the label socialist. She had big Twitter following. She's the star of countless Republican political ads that painted her as the scary face of Democratic politics. I'm talking, of course, about AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a name that most outsiders have probably heard of. But what about that congressman? He's one of the insiders uh, that insiders have heard of because he was and still is a huge player inside the Democratic Party, influential, well-connected as any Democrat in the country, and with the ear of congressional leadership, now senior policy advisor at Square Patton Boggs, Joe Crowley represented the people of New York's 14th congressional district, including his hometown of Woodside, Queens, in the U.S. Congress for nearly 20 years. He served in the House Democratic leadership for six years, first as vice chair and then as chairman of the caucus. He was a member of the prestigious House Committee on Ways and Means. He worked to protect Social Security and Medicare, championed efforts to make health care more affordable, and advocated cutting taxes for middle-class Americans and small businesses. Now, what some people don't know is he's also a great musician and a singer. There's no one in America with better insights into politics, Congress, the Democratic Party, the music of Bruce Springsteen, and where to get the best pizza in New York City. So we're thrilled to have my good friend with whom I served and learned a lot from and fellow congressional bandmate, Joe Crowley. Joe, welcome to Beyond thank, Politics. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be with you in Beyond Politics. And you may not know this, my middle name is Francis. So Joseph Francis Crowley. I prefer if you would refer to me as JFC from now on, if you don't I, I think JFC would be good. <laughs> so, so listen, in your new gig, you've taken on working with musicians to try to get better royalties for musicians. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking back to all the shows we did together, you, me, Congressman John Hall from the group Orleans. I mean, for a time, we had a congressional rock and roll super group. And you give the boss, Bruce Springsteen, a run for his money as a rock vocalist. So... <laughs> It certainly seems like a natural fit. Uh, viewers, uh, our listeners can't see the guitars hanging on your wall, but why do musicians need to make more money? Well, I think, you know, when we think of musicians, we, we just immediately think of Bruce Springsteen or we think of Beyonce or we think of Taylor Swift or any number of artists who are rock stars or rap stars or, you know, just mega stars, period. And when reality, for every star, there are literally thousands of starving artists, people who are trying to make, make it big. Uh, and very few ever do, Paul. I think you know that. It's like politics, right? Like, you know, a lot of people want to be, but very few actually get the chance to do it. And, and so uh, what you have, though, is a, a lot of musicians that contribute to mega hits. A lot of musicians who just contribute to popular music that people like may not even be hits, but just... Uh, you know, back, I always think of, you know, I think of Springsteen, I, I think of Roy Beaton, I think of, you know, Clarence Clemens and, and Gary Talent and all these folks that go into making the E Street Band. You know, that sound uh, was as much uh, a part of the artistry as it was Springsteen. So Springsteen wrote the music, he wrote the, 
the songs and the lyrics and, and, and uh, I, I love Bruce, so that's another question. But a lot goes into making a, a hit record uh, a hit or, or making a sound a sound. And so when you think of, I, I guess the best example, Paul, would be, you know, Patsy Cline, um, she sang Crazy. Um, very few people really know who wrote Crazy. It was actually written by Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson continues to make money off of the song Crazy, when in reality, it was Patsy Cline that made it the hit. And Patsy Cline, if she were living today, and certainly a state, does not receive any royalties whatsoever from whenever that record is played uh, on AM, FM radio. And that's what we're really talking about here, Paul. Uh, you're streaming, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's on Pandora or Spotify or elsewhere. Uh, her estate, we get some, uh, uh, we, we, we get some uh, money from the playing of that record uh, on the radio. And again, it's not about the Patsy Clines per se either. It is about all those other artists out there. And it's really about AM, FM radio paying its fair share when others are paying for the musicians and, and the talents they bring to, the, to their art. Yeah, you know, what, what people may not realize is that since now most music has gone digital, uh, there was a digital, there was uh, changes to the way uh, royalties were made. And, and if, you're, if you're streamed over digital, um, now both the songwriters and the players get some money. But AM, FM radio has resisted completely paying their fair share. Um, I, you know, we were all subject when we were in Congress to an awful lot of uh, pressure from the National Association of Broadcasters about this. And it's been a very hard thing to, to get equality with terrestrial radio. They complain they won't make, they'll lose money if, if they pay fair share. Yeah, and I, I think that's exactly right. You know, it's about the bottom line and, um, you know, it's about uh, beholding to stockholders and beholding to the bottom line quite frankly, and those are all those, those mega corporations, any, uh, you know, loss of revenue, uh, even if by taxation, for instance, they hate to pay taxes, they look at that as a revenue stream as well. But here in this particular case, Paul, you have uh, the artistry of a song maker, uh, of the musicians that add to that. They're making a product. It's like making a car. Uh, you know, it, a lot of work goes into a lot of effort, a lot of, you know, um, uh, education and experience and life experience goes into making that artistry and that, that, that music. Uh, no one expects for people to give cars away on the radio. Uh, no one expects that any other products are given away for free, but they expect to make money on advertising on the backs of these artists uh, without paying them anything for it. The notion was that they were providing a stage for them. It was a promotional um, service they were doing for these musicians. <laughs> you know, when you go back to the day when they're actually selling records or selling CDs or eight tracks or cassettes, you know, those days are gone, quite frankly. And when you look, especially this last year, promoting an artist so they can go out and then, you know, play locally and, you know, they'll become famous. Uh, just think of this last year. What artist, what musician has been able to play uh, outside of streaming, live streaming in this last year. It's been horrific for them. What I really fear, Paul, is how many artists have we lost? How many people that would have otherwise contributed to the majesty of American music making uh, will not do that now because they, had a, they were struggling and had to find a way to put food on the table. And they're no longer playing or no longer writing music. And that dream is lost for them. So it's the people who stuck with it that are still there and people who have contributed in the past that we're looking out for here. And quite frankly, it's about fairness. It's only the right thing to do for a Maria to play their fair share. You know, you always, uh, you've always been a guy who stood up for the little guy and you spent 20 years in Congress, now two and a half not in Congress, but still involved and tied into what's going on. 
I'm curious, what have you learned in the past couple of years outside uh, of the of the halls um, uh, with an outside perspective that you wish you had known when you were there? You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I served for 12 years in the state legislature prior to coming to Congress. And I, I often, when I was in Congress, applied it to my experience in the House in, in the state legislature in New York. Boy, if I only knew now what I, then what I knew now and what I've, what I've done differently. Um, you know, I, I think like all of us, um, we look back and, and what could we have done differently or added or, or changed. And as much as I want to dwell on that, maybe to some degree, I also find I don't want to dwell on it because, you know, life is life and you, you live it uh, uh, when the moment presents it. But I, I, and I think that I, I did an awful lot serving on the Foreign Affairs Committee, on the Financial Service Committee, on the Ways and Means Committee, serving in House leadership. Um, you know, um, I traveled a great deal in terms of seeing the, the world and our country and uh, I have a greater um, understanding and knowledge about it today. Uh, I think there's always regrets that, you know, you, you weren't there for this or that, but I was there for the Affordable Care Act, you know, and, and you know that. And right. uh, I was there for, you know, so many life-changing events for our country that um, I, I tend to not dwell on what I could have done or should have done or would have done. Uh, but I'm, I'm very proud of the service that I, I did give. And I think as, as you are as well, and I, I try to tend to be more positive about it than, than that. I want to talk about the direction of the Democratic Party. You've been a keen observer and participant in in steering that direction. And, you know, after that 2018 primary, I wrote an article about it, arguing that pundits were fundamentally misreading what was going on in the Democratic Party. It wasn't like your experience was some mirror image of what happened to Eric Cantor on the Republican side back in 2014. And it wasn't about the Democratic Party shifting dramatically left. For people who don't know, you have a very strong progressive voting record in Congress. People can check it out. I'm not just whistling Dixie here. I think what was going on was something that sometimes happens with veteran members of Congress in districts that are changing generationally or, or demographically. And there's been a lot of evidence over the years that Republicans have really been veering pretty strongly to the right. Democrats have been pretty stable. But it is fair to say that there's been a far more widespread embrace in the last few years in the Democratic Party of highly progressive policy, as well as the label, the outright label of saying, yeah, I, I kind of identify as being a socialist. So you spent a lot of time in Congress trying to sort of knit together the different wings of the Democratic Party. Is that divide between the more progressive end and the more moderate end getting bigger? And is it getting harder to do what you used to be responsible for doing and trying to knit those ends together? Yeah, I, I think, you know, when, when, when all is said and done and written about uh, the events of three years ago and uh, why that happened, I think, I think a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that I had represented a minority district my entire career. It was always 70-30. <laughs> a lot of people don't know that. And um, when I lost the primary, I didn't lose the minority vote. So that was the interesting thing. It was generational, uh, as, as you suggested. And it was um, white millennials, uh, for lack of a better term. I lost my hometown by 400 votes, you know. But I think more so, not because it was antithetical to me. And I think you're right. I think when you looked at our numbers from polling, for instance, our polling had us consistently up uh, in the 30s. Uh, even a week before the primary. I think the primary date change had an, an impact on that. I think when you look at the fact that when a, uh, a, a more well-known uh, Democratic Socialist from Cynthia Nixon ran against Andrew Cuomo, 
in September when people are normally voting, he won my district by 36 points. Uh, she was more well-known and more, and she had more money than Alexandra did as well. And taking nothing from Alexandra, because I think she's a, she's a, she's a phenom. She's no question about it, you know, uh, and a great, a very talented young woman. Um, but I do think, I think probably the biggest factor in looking back on it now was the election in 2016 of Donald Trump and the visceral reaction against that. Um, and, you know, I was always thinking, oh, I'm the perfect, you know, for, I'm the perfect, um, you know, anti-Trumper. I'm a white guy from Queens who sees the world completely different from this guy. But that wasn't enough, I think. I think people also recognized in my district, it was so overwhelmingly democratic. If you want to change, uh, the only way you can make a change is in the primary. You can't do it in the general election. So I do think that, that there, were, there were a number of elements, a confluence of things that took place. And the other to keep in mind is, you know, I, I spent an awful lot of money on that campaign, raised a lot of money. Um, and um, I, I had my eye on other opportunities as well in the House. So there were, there were a lot of things that were going on. And uh, not for a second they would take it for granted or it did not work. And we worked our tails off, you know. We knew what we were up against. We just couldn't, you know, as Paul would, would think you would know about this, when, when you're in the House leadership, you can't show much weakness because if you do, it sends a signal back to your colleagues that, you know, can we really, can Joe Crowley be there for another five years, let's say six years or 10 years, whatever it may be. So there was a lot of things about going on that I don't think were ever really fully understood that I knew, um, but really couldn't say. And still today, uh, it's, it's, it's therapy, but it's also difficult sometimes to think about it. You know? Oh, man. I, Joe, I, I feel for you. You know, I, I ran for the state Senate against a, um, a bright, uh, talented, smart, up and coming young woman. And uh, in a primary, uh, I lost the primary. Yeah, uh, yeah. She'd been working on on the campaign for years before I decided to get in. And, you know, on, 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 and, and it happened actually all over New Hampshire. Uh, young, younger people, uh, younger people and women seem to win all over New Hampshire uh, in in the in the last cycle. So I think there there, you know, there, there could be some some uh, fundamentally generational thing um, going on. Yeah. So here's here's one of the things I'm curious about. We we don't uh, often we try not to get too caught up on day to day news on the show. But um, one of the things I want to follow up uh, that follows up from what uh, Matt was talking about was the big push on infrastructure in Washington. It seems uh, like it could be a text, a test case for whether anything can be done on a bipartisan basis, but also a test case for whether Democrats can coalesce around a strategy because you've got the real challenges of progressive Democrats saying, hey, we can't do a deal unless we get a lot more on climate, childcare, healthcare, and moderates are saying, hey, this is a path forward. It's something we care about. We're going to have to, we're going to have to find compromises. Yeah. Now, you and yeah. I, we, we both lived through all these battles uh, a, a decade ago, a dozen years ago, uh, the Affordable Care Act, climate banking reform. Should Democrats swallow a deal that doesn't address everything on the priority list. And, and even if they say, yeah, we're going we're gonna to do that kind of deal, can the leadership pull the members together to do that, given, what's, given the current makeup? Yeah, I think, you know, going back and even, it really, um, 
causes us to, to really grapple with what Matthew talked about earlier, and that is the, the left and, 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 and the moderates, basically, is, is the room, I think Matthew, Matthew said, uh, for, the, for that compromise to take place. Um, I think um, a couple of things here, um, I think, really drive some of the wedges there. And I'll talk about some things that bring people together as well. One of the wedges is climate change. I mean, I think the existential threat of climate change and um, whether it's perceived or in reality, the need to move rather quickly in order to stem off some of the more damaging aspects of climate change. And not only from the United States' perspective, but from the world. Um, you know, failing to move and do some things now um, could very well be damaging. And I think that's something that uh, Congress will have to grapple with, their conscience will have to grapple with as well in terms of leaving this world for you know, future generations uh, to be able to live in, quite frankly. Um, and at the same time, we know, Paul, that the road to the majority in the House of Representatives uh, was not through districts like mine. Um, you know, you can replace all the Joe Crowley's you want with all the AOC's you want all over the country in those kinds of districts, and it doesn't move the needle in terms of who controls the House of Representatives. Uh, where that is won and lost are what we call the interface districts, or up in New York, we call them marginal. It didn't mean that the members were marginal <laughs> in, their, in their abilities, their capabilities, but it meant that they had um, a much more difficult road to hoe in terms of a general election. And as Paul knows, Matt, uh, fewer districts in, 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 the, in the United States today are actually competitive districts. Probably less than 60 districts throughout the country are competitive. And in, 20, uh, um, uh, in 2018, um, when I lost my seat, we actually won many of those districts. And that's what um, uh, pummeled us into the majority. In 2020, uh, as much as, you know, I, I talk about the, the rejection of Donald Trump by the American electorate, which clearly was, they did not reject Republicanism because they actually sent more Republicans back to the House of Representatives. We gave up seats that we had won in 2018 to Republicans. And, but for the Donald himself, uh, they would have controlled the Senate still because they would have won both seats in Georgia, or at least one of them. And that didn't happen because of him. But uh, it, because of Donald Trump, again, he lost the presidency and he quite frankly lost the Senate, but they won seats in the House. So we know that those seats, we now have like a five vote majority in, in the House. And it will come down to those. And I do think there, will there be incremental wins or will, they, will this be an all or nothing for all sides, so to speak? And I, and I do think that's where the middle does matter. Um, you know, the, uh, I think you'll find in the middle, many people have similar positions on progressive issues, whether it's on choice, on gay rights, and other issues as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that those are the folks that Pelosi is going to be listening to as well. I think she's in, as Paul, you know, Nancy, as, as well as anyone, she is a progressive progressive. Um, and she really believes in things, and she's willing to sacrifice uh, for what she believes in as well, and call, her, call on her caucus to sacrifice as well, um, when it's achievable. And I think that's what has to be that's that's what has to be dealt into. What's what I'm is just, actually achievable? You know, I'm just gonna follow up quickly and and I know I think my my question is gonna lead into a question that Matt has, and that's this. So how do you get how do you get Democrats who've been elected to the House to think beyond 
their own identity and their own chances of survival and their own district to say, you know, I mean, and especially if you're a recently elected Democratic progressive to to think about think outside yourself and say, hey, there's there's greater good here. Uh, you got to compromise on this because we got moderates who who we really need to have. We got to win win these seats. Uh, and I think this feeds into a question that Matt has. Well, I, 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 I'm happy to hear Congressman Crowley's answer to that. And then, uh, you know, and then maybe what I'll do is I'll give a classic radio tease for my big question after that. Go, go ahead, Joe. Well, I, I think it's a great question and it's a perplexing one for Democrats. There's no question about it. when you look at Joe Manchin, you look at and, and I don't believe that Joe Manchin is the only person, by the way, who's the roadblock. Uh, in, in, in getting things done in the Senate, but he has definitely taken on that responsibility and taken a lot of blows for it. Um, he's up for a re-election in 2024. We look at a state like West Virginia where there are very there are no statewide elected officials who are Democrats anymore, except for Joe Manchin. Um, you know, this may come down to, you know, a profiling coverage for Joe Manchin potentially or others like him. Um, uh, when when the realization is that you really can't get much accomplished with Mitch McConnell or Republicans in the Senate, um, you know this this recent movement by the gang of of, of twenty as they're described and maybe twenty one uh, with eleven Republicans on a more modest infrastructure bill, um, you know for hard infrastructure when it comes to roads, tunnels, and bridges, uh, broadband uh, maybe the you know uh, maybe the bridge a little further than Republicans are willing to go. Um, and then, you know, the, you have the, the, the soft infrastructure, which is child care, which is elder care, which is, you know, free uh, uh, community college um, or, 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 or some of the other um, issues and um, dealing with uh, employment for, for people to actually work in, 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 this, in, this, in this new world we're living in. Um, you know, but without addressing some of the climate issues like uh, EV vehicles and stations throughout the country and um, you know, doing more in terms of water uh, resources and clean water, uh, clean drinking water um, as, as a potential hard infrastructure. Not being able to get some of those things done, I think, is, 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 is going to be tough, I think, for Democrats. So it is in line. It's a, and, 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 and it may not be able to uh, be followed, Paul. It may be that, you know, damn the, damn the torpedoes uh, full, full steam ahead and do reconciliation. Uh, do a House bill and do a Senate bill that Democrats can walk away and say, we've, we've had some win here. But it's going to take Joe Manchin. It's going to take Kristen Sinema. It's going to take, you know, Mark Kelly. It's going to take uh, Mark Warner. It's going to take a whole bunch of Democrats and not just uh, 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 Manchin to get us to 50 plus one. You have served in the leadership of the, of the U.S. House of Representatives under current Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, back in during her earlier stint as Speaker. And you have helped to shepherd through contentious, difficult pieces of legislation where there are different interests, there are different ideas from every single member of Congress, and there are 435 of them. There are committee chairs with big egos involved, and they all have a, a, a hand in, in the matter. There's the White House, which often has very compelling set of interests going on. There's election politics, which you alluded to in your response a moment ago. You always have to be aware of that call from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee about you know, those, those members in marginal seats and what you're pushing and how it's going to affect them. What does that movie look like 
inside the room? Are you on the phone? Are you buttonholing people on the floor? Are you in constant meetings with Nancy? Can you just give people a window into what that process is like? Well, I think it differs depending on what, what's happening and what the issue is. Um, uh, I, I, I always go back to the Affordable Care Act uh, and Paul would know this as well. Um, you know, the, uh, the stress and tension that was there for, for our caucus, I think because for many people, they knew they were taking a vote that could very well jeopardize their coming back to Congress. And that wasn't for Joe Crowley, and that wasn't for you know Nancy Pelosi, but it was for Paul Hodes. It was for people who live in more difficult districts, um, uh, and uh, and some people actually lost their seats. And we lost some argued that we lost the House because of that, and because of the then climate change uh, bill um, uh, that we had uh, had addressed in the House and not in the Senate and got nowhere with. But um, I think there were uh, first of all there was an exhaustive process that goes uh, through this. A lot of, you know, you talk about pigeonholing uh, people or buttonholing people, it's really more listening, uh, I think. And I, the one thing about Pelosi is she's a great listener. Um, she also knows your district as well as you do. Uh, she knows everyone's district fairly well. And um, there's no BSing her, you know. Uh, she's, uh, she knows what you can and what you can't do. And she also knows when she's asking you to make a sacrifice. And I think for some people, uh, through a moral suasion, I, I give her tremendous credit for so much uh, of, 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 and deserve so much um, in terms of pushing back against the Trump years in particular. I don't know where we would have been without her. Um, and this is someone who was kind of on her heels all the time and who, um, who, who loves her. And, and I, say, I say to you that I, I, we have a tremendous uh, and great relationship, despite the fact Paul knows we're always kind of, there's always someone on your heels, I guess. So uh, if it wasn't me, it'd be somebody else, maybe. So she respects that. But, you know, went through an exhaustive process, uh, listening to all corners of our, of our caucus. And then when time came down to it, you know, it was about I wouldn't say twisting arms, but trying to persuade people as to why it's in the interest of our country. What are we sent here to do? Are we, are we here? You know, I always say when Alexandra defeated me in my primary, I didn't own that seat. I didn't own the seat that I was in. And I often thought to myself, what would be the issue that I would give my seat up for? What was the issue that if I had to take a vote, would I do that for? Because that's what's consequential about being in Congress is when, you know, winning or losing, is, there's nothing dishonorable about losing honorably. Uh, when you lose on the issues or lose on the on the the, you know, the issues of the day, sometimes you have no control over. Uh, but when you have that opportunity to have control and you can add to something, uh, Marjorie Margolis in Pennsylvania when she took that tough vote, you know there 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 are you know, history you know is replete with folks that, that have done that, and maybe this is an opportunity to do that again. But it's going to take time. It's not going to happen necessarily. If they choose to do uh, reconciliation, even that is not going to happen. Although Marjorie Margolis did get a daughter-in-law out of the deal. And you can't always <laughs> promise that. Don't tell me you were always promising people like Paul, hey, look, if you take one for the team on the ACA, well, I'm going to marry family. off one of your kids. <laughs> I'd love to have my kids married to Pelosi's family, trust me, but it's not, that would have always been no problem. But yeah, no, I, I do think that, you know, people, uh, you know, uh, we, we look at Lincoln's passage of the 13th Amendment, were they all honorable in terms of the, <laughs> the intentions that were brought to do that? But I think the one thing the movie uh, Lincoln brought out was that, you know, moments call for uh, personal courage. And, you know, some of those people did it out of self-interest and some people did it out of because they felt it was the right thing to do. 
And maybe it's a combination of both uh, that you gotta, you know, we have the presidency um, and there's opportunity for people to be rewarded uh, politically as well. But I, I think when it comes to the issues of climate change, it comes to the issues of, 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 of childcare and actually giving women primarily the opportunity to, to, to participate in the workforce and to help their families uh, survive in, in this modern world. You know, those are, those are tough um, uh, uh, votes to take, but I think are historically uh, courageous votes to take as well. And so I think, but that, that's for me. And, and, and people have to weigh that in their own, in their own, in their own way, in their own self. Um, examination. You know, just to, to, to put to put a fine point on on what you've just said, Joe, I'm thinking back to my decision to vote for Obamacare. And I was running for the US Senate. And I was running uh, against a popular uh, young female attorney general. Um, and, uh, and my district was not exactly split on Obamacare. I think there was a strong, a strong tide running against it. The Republicans had done a great job. When I was in fifth grade in school in New York City, I got a book as a history prize, Profiles in Courage. And I had read that book a lot when I was a kid, thinking about all the people who had taken votes and, uh, and, that, and, and it hadn't gone well for them. And I and I was I was really aware that that it was that it was trouble, um, and I remember talking to lots of people in leadership and talking to you and I talked to Nancy and I talked to Steny and I I mean I you know I was talking to people about it, and in the end one of the, the what I heard was you got to do what's right for you, that's really what I heard and that in in a way was the most persuasive persuasive thing, because it. It, it made me feel as a member of Congress that the leadership was respectful. Um, and, you know, not that my ego is, is, was enormous, but it, I, it was healthy. And, 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 but, and getting a sense of that respect from leadership was really important to me. And uh, I, I knew frankly, when I cast that vote, that that was probably uh, curtains for me. And, and it was, I, I don't I, know if you remember this, but you, you actually called me from the floor and you said that, do you remember that? No. You said that you, you, you called me from the floor right before the vote. And you said, well, I'm going to do this. Th this, this is, this is probably it. I don't remember your exact wording, but right. you, you were, you were eyes wide open on that. I know I was, I happened to be on my birthday, by the way, I, I the, you know, so I put the card in the slot, I voted for it. And, uh, and uh, the predictable uh, massive defeat happened, it happened to a lot of Democrats that year. So, so Joe, what are people saying behind the scenes about what's going on with the Republicans? 138 of them voted to overturn the election. They just kicked Liz Cheney out of leadership. They seem to be all in on uh, on uh, on uh, erecting bronze statutes to, to Donald Trump um, behind closed doors. Are the Republicans, you know, depressed, alarmed? Are they wondering what's going on? Or are they all just going off the cliff like Thelma and Louise? I think it's a combination of all that. I think they're alarmed. I think there are those who are going off the cliff. I, I think um, they, they, they're in a trap and they don't know how to get out of it. Uh, but I've talked to several uh, Republicans and continue to talk to folks who are former members who, are, who, I, who I consider friends. And, um, you know, they, they express alarm. Um, but I think there's also um, not too much of an appetite to stick even their heads out right now. Um, and uh, we look at look at all these votes, whether it was to certify the election, whether it was to, uh, you know, uh, 
impeach the president again for what I believe were obviously impeachable offenses, or even most recently, uh, the vote to give uh, the Capitol Police the Congressional Gold Medal, where 21 Republicans voted against it. Uh, you know, Paul, I always thought the, the Democrats were the ones who were weak on police uh, policing. And, um, you know, there, you know when, when, especially in this last election in 2020, where Republicans uh, effectively, I think, politically used uh, the issue of defunding the police against us in certain areas. Um, to see uh, the assault that uh, was laid bare on January 6th against police officers defending the Capitol building. Uh, it was no normal tourist day on Capitol Hill. And to have that described and to have those kinds of lies uh, blatantly in front of the American people, it, it, you know, I'm not comparing us to Hitler's Nazis, but it, it's that notion of just keep saying it over and over and over again, despite what you see, and people will believe it. Uh, it just is outrageous, the defense of people attacking police officers and attacking uh, uh, really the tabernacle of democracy, the cradle of democracy. Uh, and to have Americans defend that is just outrageous. And, to, and so it actually, it gets worse. You know, it's not getting better to some degree. As much as we're trying to find a way forward and work with, with some Republicans, I, I guess, you know, the people who voted for the gold medal are, you know, aren't as bad, even if they voted for, um, you know, not certifying the election, I guess. <laughs> if they're compared to the 21 who wouldn't give the gold medal, I assume they didn't vote to certify the election. I assume none of them voted to impeach the president. So it all, you know, we have to work with someone. It's a two-party system. And I think that's really the problem for Democrats as well, is who do you work with? Who can you work with? Who's real and who's phony? Who's who's in bed forever with Donald Trump? And, and is there a glimmer of any hope that they can you know, extract themselves from, from the script. Well, you know, that's a great segue to my next question, which is one of the side effects of all of this craziness that we've seen from the Republican side is what looks like a really fundamental change in the relationship between the Democratic Party and what you might call corporate America. Now, one of the, I wasn't just blowing smoke before when I said one of the things that you really led on among the Democratic Party during your time in the leadership in Congress was the relationship between the business community, business interests, trade interests, uh, more traditionally Republican-leaning interests, and Democrats in the House. And we've now seen new levels of support for the Democratic Party from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is a sentence I didn't think I was going to say during my political lifetime, and individual corporations, and a rejection of what you might call the Sedition Caucus, the Republicans who voted to overturn the election. So I guess my question is, is this real? Is there, yeah. is there really something different happening now, a significant change? Or is this more a case of, look, you know, business always works with the party in power, and Democrats are the party in power. So this is more run-of-the-mill stuff. I think it may be a combination of, uh, it's a really question of how long will this, you know, um, this anger towards uh, those uh, who, who, forget about Trump, but for those who voted to cer not certify the election or voted to uh, not impeach or putting that aside, you know, really it was the insurrection aspect of it. You know, the, um, those who continue to, to question after the Capitol was attacked, after police officers were, were attacked and some died as a result of those, uh, those injuries. Um, you know, um, I do think 
the pushback by Republicans themselves against corporate America. It's kind of an interesting kind of time, maybe. Uh, they're feeling the sting a little bit in terms of they're not having their backs, maybe. Uh, they, they, they delivered for them the largest tax cut in the history of the country, um, both on the personal tax level as well as corporate taxes. Uh, and yet they're not getting the love that they should be getting from them. And that may be because, you know, despite the fact they may be Republican leading, um, they love their country too and are not willing to have uh, an insurrection be um, uh, just whitewashed and, and, and covered up. Um, but again, and I think it goes back to this and Paul knows as well, you know, it's really difficult to do things on a, by one party, especially when you have such a small margin in the House and you have, you know, virtual tie in the Senate uh, without reconciliation um, and uh, where you're not punished maybe uh, for the lack of progress or uh, an overreaction uh, uh, in the midterm election. So it is a dicey time. Uh, there really isn't the partnership, certainly in the House Republican leadership. Every one of them has drank the Kool-Aid, it seems, you know, with the exception of uh, Liz Cheney, who got kicked out. So these are these are incredibly difficult times, I think, and trying to find, maybe it's in those problem, problem solvers. You know, I think uh, Republicans expect more out of the Democratic members of the problem solvers than maybe Democrats expect out of the Republican members. I was always more suspect of the Republican members of the problem solvers caucus because I always thought that they, uh, you know, they, they really used uh, our Democratic members. But maybe now is the time to put the pressure on them, whether it's the Fitzpatricks of the world or you know, others who, who, who say that they're problem solvers. We'll see if that's true or not. So um, in your time in the United States Congress, what is the wildest thing that ever happened to you? The strangest or funniest or craziest. Oh. And, uh, and, uh, and, and the only thing you, I, I won't let you talk about is the performance we gave at the first uh, democratic uh, orientation down in Williamsburg when you and me and John Hall uh, all got up on stage and played you're still the one yeah. with Nancy Pelosi and Steny yeah. Hoyer and Rahm Emanuel dancing yeah. in front of us with their mouths open. Yeah, we did dance with me as well. Dance we did dance with me. With me. I, I want know. to be a partner. That was a great tune. That was yeah. a John Hall song too. You know? yeah, it was. Um, that was a, those were great times. And, uh, you know, the, I, I have to say that probably one of the greatest honors I had was to fly on Air Force One with the president to India um, on his last trip to India. Um, you know, to be on Air Force One for a second, a nanosecond, to be on it for 30 hours was quite an experience. And uh, to be with uh, President Obama and uh, Mrs. Obama and the First Lady was just uh, fabulous. Um, you know, so you talk about opportunities, but I had plenty. I mean, to, to try to, to try to, to buttonhole one is really difficult. I, um, I've seen, I've seen fistfights on the floor. I, I think, you know, the other, one of the other things that I, I, I got to participate in was the house sit-in on, um, gun violence, you know, and to sit with John Lewis and, and Paul, you know, the, to, to have called John a colleague, it sounds so raw. He was a personal friend and someone whom I loved. I absolutely, absolutely adored and loved the man, as I know you did as well. Yeah. Uh, but he was our friend, and it was you know to to be able to serve with legends like that and um, historical figures. You know, I'll, I'll be I'll be long forgotten, but some of the people we got to serve with won't be. And um, my kids all know that as well. 
Right. Um, I, the one incident on the floor that I regretted the most um, was probably, um, I got a little, I didn't get physical, but I tapped someone on the shoulder. I shouldn't have tapped because that, that's technically assault, I guess you could say, when you, when you unwantedly touch someone uh, when they were being rude to one of the staffers um, uh, on our side, a Republican who's being rude, but turns out to be a really good guy, and I felt bad about that. Um, but uh, yeah, just so many wondrous moments and friendships um, and you know, heads of state, uh, the Pope uh, speaking, uh, before the uh, the Congress, uh, you know, things that I, uh, in my wildest dreams, I never would have thought of being present for, but being really there for history um, every day was just a treat. And is there a, is there a piece of advice that you would give to a new member of Congress? You know, one of the things that I enjoyed the most when I was in grad school was that I, I got to be part of the Harvard program. I worked there. I didn't get to be part of it. It's not like I was elected to anything, but I got to, you know, work as part of the program for new members, newly elected members of Congress. It was yeah. awesome. You know, all these yeah. folks show up and they've just been handed this incredible responsibility that only 10,000 people in the history of our country have ever had. Mm -hmm. What would you, what would you tell folks like that getting started today? The first is never forget that the opportunity that you have that uh, literally hundreds of thousands of people would want to have. Um, and, and, and aren't able to do that. And the responsibility comes with that. But also never forget you're working in you know, this, this incredible historic building um, and your lineage back to the founding of the country with warts and all and this move and this desire for a more perfect union, recognizing we will never be perfect, but moving towards perfection is always the goal. Um, I think that is, is, is the advice. I, I think also having a healthy understanding of who you are. Um, that, you know, there are, there are graveyards filled with indispensable people and yet uh, the country goes on. So my, my favorite day in American history, and it's gonna sound a little crazy, is April 16th, 1865. It's because Abraham Lincoln was shot on the 14th. He regrettably died on the 15th, but on the 16th, the sun rose on the Republic and we went on despite losing the greatest president in the history of our country. Um, that is what America is about. Uh, even during these very difficult, challenging, and horrific times for me, uh, these four years of Donald Trump that we lived through, uh, we've survived and we're gonna continue to survive and, and, and flourish uh, and, 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 and grow as, as a democracy. I, 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 I firmly believe because that's who we are as a people. So last question for the lightning round. We're going to move from the beautiful to the really important. I'm on my way to see my 95-year-old mom in New York in not too long. Who's got the best pizza? The best pizza for me is local. It's Rose's Pizzeria on Grand Avenue and 69th Street in Maspeth, Queens. The great Suzil, the best Sicilian pizza you're ever going to have. And they, have, they make a fine uh, regular slice as well. And it's, and it's, it's reasonable. So oh, what's your favorite road. slice? You're a New Yorker. But, and I would say my favorite slice is the grandma pizza, which is kind of a cross between Sicilian and regular pizza, but it's square. It's got a thinner crust than a regular Sicilian at, at, at Mama's. It's fantastic. See, I keep thinking about the place I used to go to when I was in third grade, down near PS40 on First Avenue. It's long gone, but a slice was 25 cents. What yeah, can I tell yeah. you? Yeah, slice was 25 cents in Mass, but too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to say you're both wrong. The best slice is in Manhattan. It's at Sal and Carmine's. 
Okay, folks, it's Beyond Politics. We've just, Joe, I can't tell you how much we've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Your, your wisdom, your experience, your humor, and your musical chops. <laughs>